Hey guys, welcome to Bird of Lore. Uh, this is a podcast about the weird, spooky, true crime, cryptids, a little bit of everything. Uh, I'm your host, Phoenix, and today we're going to be talking about true crime, specifically uh, Amy Bishop. So before I get into it, I'd like to, I guess, disclaimer, I don't have like a fancy studio, so you might hear the birds outside, rain, a little bit of tornadoes going on, so I'm trying to muffle as much sound as I possibly can. But yeah, let's just hop into it. Um, this isn't going to be mostly a true crime podcast, this is going to be a little bit of everything. True crime's super sad to look up, and I didn't realize how sad it was until I cried a few times research- researching, so... I'm just going to sprinkle them throughout. But this case has been living in my head rent-free, so I need to get it out there. But let's just start. So Amy Bishop was born April 24th, 1965. In case you're in astrology, this makes Amy a Taurus. Her parents, Judy and Sam Bishop, met while attending New England School of Art in Boston. Judy is quoted saying, I chased him until he caught me. In 1964, the couple moved to Iowa City. Sam did graduate work painting during the day, and he was a janitor at night, both at the University of Iowa. The family moved to Massachusetts. Sam got a job teaching art at Northeastern University. They settled down in Braintree in 1968, and Amy's younger brother, Seth, was born later that year. Their house was super nice. It's an old house, has two stories. A dentist had actually built it. He used a cottage out back on the property for his practice, and he lived in the house. It was kind of like a Victorian-style-ish house. The family would rent the cottage out sometimes to people. Judy, her mother, was very involved in the community. She was known to always attend meetings. Amy, as a child, was described as bright and competitive. Judy said she was always arranging her toys in elaborate formations as if they were perpetually on parade. She loved music and science, as did her brother. Amy was in and out of the hospital law as a a child due to allergies, and she says this is what inspired her to go into science later as a degree in life. The siblings were described as close and loved each other. Seth was shy like Amy, but more approachable. Seth and his best friend, Paul Agnew, loved trains. Seth had a model railroad in his attic, They both would sneak into the local train yard to see the trains up close. Seth was known to ride his bike everywhere. It was not uncommon for Judy to be driving miles away from home and then come across a lone bicyclist who happened to be her son off on his latest adventure. One story from Seth's friends is once in middle school, some kids were picking on Seth for carrying around his violin, so he began to play right then and there and left them all speechless. His senior year, he began dating a girl named Melissa Tutteru. I might have said that wrong. Tutteru, T-A-T-R-E-A-U. Melissa is quoted saying that Amy did not seem to approve of her. She's quoted, I got the impression she thought I wasn't good enough. Although Amy at this point had moved off to college, Melissa described the family as a unit. One night in 1985, the family came back home from Sam's father's wake to find the window of the first floor open and the house ransacked. Robbers had broken in and stole Judy's wedding ring, a pair of silver cups commemorating the children's birth, and other valuables. 
The thief grabbed the pillowcases from the children's beds and then used it as bags for the goods. Judy wrote a letter to the local paper to plead to the thieves to bring back the mementos. Sam went to a sporting goods store and bought a 12-gauge shotgun. Judy and Amy did not want the gun in the house at first, but Sam bought it nonetheless. Sam kept the gun unloaded in his bedroom. I believe the gun was in his closet and the shells were top of the, on top of the dresser. Over a year later, on December 6, 1986, Judy placed a frantic 911 call. Amy had just shot her younger brother in front of her mother in the kitchen and ran out of the house. So, let's go back to the start of this day. That morning, Judy left early and the rest of the, left the rest of the family asleep. She went out to a nearby town in Quincy to take care where she was. Oh my goodness, sorry, I'm speaking too fast. Judy left before the rest of the family woke up. She's boarding an elderly horse in Quincy, and so she went out that way to take care of the horse, and she's usually out there for a few hours. Um, the rest of the family woke up later. Amy was 21, Seth was 18, and as they were going about their morning, Amy and her father, Sam, had gone into an argument over a comment Amy had made. He left for work in a huff. Sam went out to start his day, and Amy was alone in the house that day. Now, the details of the rest of the story are kind of fuzzy. Um, I'm going to try to give you a very theory and the story the best we know. Um, things like this, you know, it's not really any hardcore facts. It's just whatever the family says. So, Amy claims that she was home alone and she was scared the robbers were going to come back for some reason. So, she went to get her father's gun. She claimed Seth taught her how to load it but not unload the weapon. And trying to figure that out, she accidentally blew a hole through a vanity in the bedroom. She claims she heard Seth come home, so she ran downstairs to ask him for help and accidentally shot him in the chest. Seth came home around the same time Judy did. It was like 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I think, or around there. And Judy claims as well it was an accident. She said Seth was bringing the groceries in. She was right behind him. And then... Amy came down to ask for help and it was a small kitchen and it just went off and it was an accident and she freaked out and ran outside with the gun. Um, but I'll, there's some discourse about like if the timeline really adds up, there's this really good article that I'm going to, I put all my sources in the links after I'm probably going to shout it out for sure at the end. I think it's by like, the New York times. The guy really goes into it. Well, but this is an accident. She ran from the house with the gun, okay? And she didn't just leave the house with the gun. No, she kept running with the gun to a mechanics and ran to like a Ford shop where there were like off-duty mechanics outside. And she ran to the mechanics and she said, quote, I need a car. I just got into a fight with my husband. He's looking for me. He's going to kill me. They did not give her a car. Also, where... I, why lie why make up the story but okay so I think you know she goes on and she's brandishing this weapon at them and then the cops find her near a newspaper distribution center a few moments later and then she has a standoff with police and they're telling her to put the gun down and she refuses until the cop comes behind her with his own gun 
Then she finally complies and let, lets them take her to the station. And once they got her, they realized the gun was loaded. So she had shot her brother, went out, and then at some point, like, cocked the gun, like, reloaded the gun. So she had a live round going while she was yelling at people, yelling at police the whole time. Now, I'm going to pause here, and we're going to go into the theories about potentially why she shot her brother before I continue on with how the rest of this day went. So, some people believe she was unstable and she shot him out of jealousy, but I couldn't really find much to back this up. Sam, her father, believes she ran downstairs and the barrel accidentally hit something and the gun misfired. Which is possible, but from what I've read and asked people, it, it seems kind of unlikely. But I'm not a gun expert, and I'm not going to say it's impossible. Another theory, which I personally buy into more, but it's just a theory, is that Amy actually thought it was her father coming home from work and shot the wrong person. I believe this is the most likely theory because... Sam actually came home late that day from work. Instead of coming straight home, he went Christmas shopping. So he wasn't back on his normal time. Investigators also found a copy of the National Enquirer on her bedroom floor when looking back at crime scene photos later. They ordered an exact copy from the Library of Congress and found this specific issue had an article about the murder of Patrick Duff's parents. Duff was an actor on the show Dallas, and on November 18, 1986, Two young people killed Duff's parents in their Montana bar with a 12-gauge shotgun and used the gun to flee the scene and steal a getaway car. And they believe this might have been inspiration and almost a how-to for Amy reading the story. Later, Amy would go on to write some books. And a lot of the material, you can tell she borrowed from her real life. One story talks about a girl with superpowers who throws a rock or like uses her powers to throw a rock at one kid misses and accidentally kills another younger boy nobody suspects it was her fault that he died and her parents silently acknowledge the truth and reassure they forgive her later now this is a work of fiction but it's kind of interesting her writing about this and guilt given this incident but you know you i highly suggest looking into it yourself when i started researching this case i didn't realize there's so much to it um but you know can come up with your own conclusions um on paper it was originally an accident but let's get back to what happened so where we left off you know the police have her she put her gun down they take her into the custody they take her to the station during this sam went to the hospital where he found seth and this was just so heartbreaking to read but staff told him Seth was dead when he got there. And he said it looked like Seth was looking right at him. Like he was right there. Like he just couldn't believe the truth. And I just can't imagine how devastating that must be for a parent. But we're going to go from sad to angry. Because police said Amy was so distraught about what had happened that they just let her go. They released her to her parents and they just went about it as an accident and they did not process it as a crime. 
A few people claim that Judy came in and asked to speak to the chief, the chief of police, John Polio, and used her connections to have Amy set free. Now, John and Judy both claim they like hardly knew each other, but it's also a small town and Judy was known for being very active in the community. So, who knows? Um, the police standoff was also not included in the final police report. So, I that also has an effect on how that was processed. And it also means Amy has a clean record up to this point. Um, yeah, I'm going to mention that article later because it really goes into a lot more details about this. But I just, it was too much to go into up. Uh, all the way and I didn't want to like steal all of his work but um yeah for sure go look that up later I'm going to put the link in the bio but um while while the family was picking up Amy from the police station um neighbors came over and cleaned the scene for them which is crazy to me because I mean accident or not I just I just feel like I don't know it's just a whack system like some professional cleanup should be offered i mean one it's a biohazard and two i don't know how you expect a family to clean up their loved one i mean thank god for those neighbors but i just feel like this trauma upon trauma i just i just can't i just cannot imagine but that night amy stayed in her parents room sam stayed in his study and judy stayed with a nurse out so that they were renting the cottage out to a nurse at the moment and they were sitting in the kitchen talking and the, um, the sweet nurse looked and still saw specks of blood and kind of ushered Judy out so she could clean it. At Seth's funeral, Amy was noted for being zombie-like for months after Amy barely left the house. The family stayed in that house for years to come. Amy did not go to therapy for this traumatic event. Sam did not believe in therapy. And Amy said she felt bad and she did not want to explore feeling bad. Now, this was the 80s and therapy and mental health was not as understood and socially accepted as it is now. However, as we go on, it becomes clear Amy had severe mental health issues and while I believe some of those she's probably had her whole life, I'm sure this traumatic event didn't help and it was definitely a big turning point for her. So, I don't know. Honestly, if you, I'm a big advocate that I think if you ever experience anything, like especially this traumatic, to just go talk to someone. If you can't get a therapist, make it a friend, a family member, process your feelings. I mean, nobody wants to explore being sad, but you can't get over it without going through it. You need to let yourself feel and feel entirely. But like I said, Amy did not go to therapy. Instead, she threw herself into school. She did great at Northeastern and ended up meeting her husband, Jim Anderson, through a D&D club there. <laughs> so... Sorry, I left. I just, I had a little note in my, in here written where I was like, I just really like D&D and I kind of hate that they met in such a cute way because they're not good people. I mean, I'm not even going to back that up. They're just not, don't shoot people and be a good person. 
But anyway, she went to Northeastern, met her husband, graduated, and then she enrolled in the PhD program for genetics at Harvard in 1988. During school, she barely spoke of Seth. A classmate, Brian Roach, is quoted saying, you just knew? Don't bring it up. Sam, her dad, told Amy, one way to overcome loss was to create life. Which is such, in my opinion, terrible advice. Yes, love is a way to heal. When I was homesick, I got a cat. but And loving him keeps me happy. However, like, a, a way to process grief is to not have a baby. You need to go to therapy. And to create a human and expect them to fix whatever's going on in your life is a lot of pressure to put on a tiny baby. And I feel like that just allows your child to inherit your trauma without them ever fully understanding why and then just perpetuates the cycle. But that's just me. Anyway, he told her to have a kid and not soon after, in 91, she gave birth to a little girl and then she later had two more daughters. And I hope they're doing fine and great. And gets, And if they need any help, I hope they reach out for it. Friends describe Amy as a loving, high-strung mother, only buying organic foods and pushing her kids to learn musical instruments. She lived in the cottage on her parents' property, which worked out because her mother was the only one she trusted to watch her kids, supposedly. Okay, so I looked it up, and the article I was talking about in question was not the New York Times. It's the New Yorker, and it's called A Loaded Gun written by Patrick Radin Keefe. Anyway, just want to shout that out real quick before we continue and it gets lost. So she was struggling at Harvard and she was not the hot shot that she was before. Also at this, this is the age where mental illness begins to show up if it's there. Uh, she graduated Harvard nonetheless though and she went on to do research jobs and jim worked as a freelance computer engineer now she was upset she really expected more from her life at this point and in 1993 amy and jim had a potential violent run-in with the law she was working in research and boston's children's hospital under dr paul rosenberg and amy was brilliant i mean you'll see that throughout this she's brilliant but she's just off so She's super smart, but she's very bad with people. And very soon, he felt she could not handle the work. So she soon quit and was very upset and insulted by this. And supposedly, allegedly, allegedly, uh, Jim was overheard saying he wants to stab or shoot Rosenberg. Now, her husband Jim denies this claim. But however, three months later, Rosenberg receives a suspicious package. Now, this is during the time of the Unabomber. So thankfully, Rosenberg thinks to sneak a peek before opening the box, and he sees a trigger and a pipe bomb inside. So he barely avoided being blown up. The bishops were investigated, but they refused police to search their house. And with lack of evidence, they were let go, and the case is still fish officially unsolved. But you can kind of put together who probably did it. And Amy is noted with gifting a friend some materials that were that are used for explosives. And everyone claims it was a joke, but like, mm, okay. 
1996, her parents sold the home and moved 35 miles away. They're quoted saying, too many ghosts. In 2001, she gave birth to a baby boy on what would have been her brother's 33rd birthday, and she named the baby after her late brother. Also, in 2001, her family went to IHOP for a nice meal and didn't quite go as well. So the restaurant was very busy that day, and Amy had asked the waitress for a high chair, and the waitress apologizes to Amy and explains that she just gave the last one away to another family. And for some reason, Amy feels insulted by this, and she explodes in anger with going, do you know who I am? I am Dr. Amy Bishop. And then she goes and claims, you know, they were there first and how dare they. And eventually she goes and she punches the other mother who got the chair in the face. So Amy is kicked out and arrested and told to go to anger management classes. Now the charges were dropped against her and it's unclear if Amy ever actually went to those classes. But here we are, anyway, um, wanting more out of life, probably to get away from trouble. Um, Amy accepts a job at UAH, the University of Alabama in Huntsville, in 2003. Fun fact, before we get super sad, um, the leader of the Colt Heavensgate actually worked in the UA system. But he worked at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, the parent college of UAH, in the 50s as a music teacher before he was fired for an affair with a student. Which, I don't know, I just thought that was kind of neat when I was listening to, like, a thing about Heaven's Gate. But I want to throw that connection out there. But anyway, she began work as an assistant professor in the biology department. And, I mean, first off, she was loved. I mean, students say that, you know, she was super into it. She was lively. She even became department representative of the, fac- of the faculty senate at the university. Later, Bishop and her husband invented an electronic petri dish designed to keep cells alive longer. This got the school lots of grants and gave Amy the bragging rights she's always wanted which she enjoy. I mean, she was known to drop the Harvard bomb. She, I mean, this was like her peak, but it was also, I believe, the beginning of her downfall. See, she's always had this air of, I'm better than you. I'm so good. And now this is her, look at me. I'm making inventions. I'm bringing this grants in. And I think she gets too big headed. So later, She's so involved in this. She's not as cheerful and as lively a professor as she once was. She begins to disengage with students. She either kicks students off of labs or they request to leave her labs. She was known to read verbatim the textbook and her lack of enthusiasm of teaching was just really gone. Um, She was super interested in her next great invention. A group of students went to the head of the biology department and raised concerns about her teaching. On top of this, to become tenured, you must become scientifically published. And Amy was falling behind on this. In March 2009, she is denied tenure. Amy is upset and insulted. And instead of just taking the L, she files for appeal. 
She is then said to have bothered people to vouch for her. Like she was badgering students and um, other colleagues to like, I guess, bend the rules for her, which they're not going to do. So her tenure to stay denied. And um, something I would like to add before we get too far into this is something I haven't really seen mentioned in any of the sources I've read. However, as a local, I feel it's very important to mention this for context. But on February 5th, 2010, a 15-year-old boy named Hamid Mimon, or Mimon, M-E-M-O-N, walked up behind Todd Brown and shot him in the head in the middle of the hallway of Discovery Middle School. Hamid's family tried to flee the country, but were later caught in Dallas. He is currently serving 30 years and is considered for probation in 2026. And I only mention this terrible incident because exactly seven days later, a week, Amy Bishop would go into UAH into a faculty meeting and shoot several of her colleagues. And I remember being in fifth grade and my mom having to pick me up early from school because the shooting took place across town in the middle school. And I remember a week later, my mom turning on the news that night and my family being glued to the TV, listening about UAH. And I remember like our dog had just had puppies that day. And like, so like if people died and these puppies were born and I remember, I guess, fully realizing the circle of life with life and death. And that was, I don't know. A, um, a heavy a heavy subject for a 10-year-old to <laughs> take in at once. But I mean, I only mention this because I think it's important to know the climate of what was happening in the town and how this really resonated with people during this. I mean, we, I don't know, Huntsville was just getting over a tragedy happening and then Amy comes and does this. And I mean, just our school system, our town, I mean, I don't know. It was a lot at once. And it was scary. Also, if you can hear noises, this might be my neighbors. I live in an apartment building. But anyway. um, So anyway, February 12th, 2010, Bishop brought a bag with her to school, which she didn't often do. And she went on to teach her anatomy and neuroscience classes. Students say she seemed a little distracted, but acted fine. Bishop then attended a faculty meeting for the biology department on the third floor of the Shelby building. About 12 to 13 people attended the meeting and the Bishop, she didn't have to be there. Um, They were going over the next semester's plans and she was not going to be teaching at that point, but she went anyway. She sat quietly in the chair in front of the door, only door to the room, mind you, for about 30 to 40 minutes into the meeting. And then she just stands up and she pulls out a 9mm handgun just before 4pm. Witnesses say Amy got up suddenly, took out a gun, and just starts shooting at each one of us. She started with the one closest to her and went down the row shooting her targets in the head. Those who were shot were on one side of the table and the other side of the table dropped to the floor. Six shots were fired, hitting and killing Gopi Padilla, biology chairman, Maria Ragland Davis, a biology professor and a role model for the department, 
Dr. Adrian Johnson, a cell biologist renowned in his field and known for helping minority students in science. She shot and wounded Dr. Joseph Leahy, Dr. Louis Cruzer, Steph- Stephanie um, Monti, I'm just pausing so I want to make sure I spell her name right, Stephanie Monticoli. So, as Amy was shooting, her work friend and colleague, Dr. Deborah Moriarty, crawled and grabbed Amy's leg. Amy pulled free from Moriarty and then pointed the gun at her. And Moriarty said, first thing I said was, Amy, think about my grandson. Think about my daughter. Amy, you know I've helped you. I'll help you again. It's me. It's me. She thought maybe Amy would go, oh, it's Deb, and quit. However, instead, without saying a single word, Amy pointed the gun at Moriarty and pulled the trigger. The gun clicked. It was jammed. Moriarty crawled out of the room, luring luring Amy out. Amy followed and kept trying to shoot, thankfully to no avail. She says, she pulled the trigger and it clicked. She was continually clicking, trying to get it to fire. Moriarty said, believing the gun was jammed, she crawled back into the room and Dr. Robert Lawton lunged forward and locked the door. They were scared Amy would fire through the door, so they put a table against the door, covering the window, and pressed a mini fridge against it. Dr. Cruz Ver called 911, but had to hand off the phone because he soon realized he was shot. They used napkins to apply pressure to Dr. Joseph Lay's head, and Dr. Joseph Ng pulled his shirt off to stop Stephanie's bleeding. Amy Bishop, once locked out, took off and hid in a bathroom stall on the second floor. She wrapped her jacket around the gun, and she put it in the bathroom trash. She then walked out and asked to borrow a student's cell phone. She called her husband to come pick her up behind the school near the loading docks. Which, like, I'm not going to try to tell you how to do your own shooting, but, like, you're going to plan ahead all of this and not even have a car to get away in? It's just so weird. By the time Jim got there, Amy had already been arrested. She was being taken away, and she's recorded saying, it didn't happen. There's no way. There's no way. They're still alive. She's charged with three attempts murders and three three attempted murders and one count of murder. And now I'm not sure why she wasn't charged for the other murders, unless I know in some true crime cases they'll only charge you with one and they'll keep the others almost in reserve. So in case you ever get off for some reason, like the case like if she had gone off free for that one, they could charge her with the other two to really keep her behind bars, which I think is really smart. Um, Amy had been known to self-harm after her brother's death. Supposedly, she tried to kill herself at least once unsuccessfully. Her parents deny this and refer to her saying she was just seeing if the pumpkin knife was sharp. Okay. Um, But this comes back because she told her lawyer she wanted the death penalty. She wanted to die. And her parents talked her out of it. 
I think she'd wait forever for that anyway on death row. On September 26, 2011, Amy pleads not guilty by reason of insanity. And I'm not exactly sure when, but sometime during this, Amy did try to kill herself again by slicing her wrist. She was found in time to be taken to the hospital and be saved, but another four minutes, however, and she would have bled out. Amy was found guilty and is spending the rest of her life in Tutwiler Women's Prison in Alabama. There's a story of her being in a cell with a woman with false teeth. The guard asked whose teeth was on the window seal, and she said, let me give you a hint, and smiled big. So she's an asshole. She also claimed to have punched three women, one of whom was trying to fight her at lunch. Which, okay. After the shooting, police looked into Seth's death again, but had to drop it due to the statute of limitations being expired. When this took place, her youngest was in elementary school, but now all of her children are grown 11 years later. Juan even went on to be a teacher. Uh, Jim is still married to her. When asked why, he just simply says, it's cheaper. She tried to appeal her case, saying she was mentally ill, she didn't know what she was doing, she was schizophrenic, her lawyers weren't the best, etc. She, this is wild to me, she did not apologize for what she had done until five years later. Supposedly, she still talks to her brother as well in the present tense, telling her parents Seth visited her in her cell today, and so on, which, like, I'm adding in here because I think there's an underlying theme of mental illness. And, but I also, this is a paranormal podcast. So she could have schizophrenia. She could be seeing ghosts. Or she could be lying and building her case. I don't know, but I feared that was kind of interesting. Um, but also, who doesn't apologize? I mean, even if you don't mean it, who doesn't apologize? Or that until five years later. I apologize like at five times every hour for s- silly things. But okay. Um, I read she calls her kids every chance she gets. However, Jim also said they barely visit. So I'm not really sure how close she is with her family anymore. Um, but I mean, that's, that's pretty much a wrap on the bishops. I'm going to talk about the victims for a little bit now. So, Dr. Gopi Padilla came to Huntsville 10 years prior to this, and is called saying, Biotech has a hidden gem in Huntsville. He was 52 and left a teaching job at Michigan Technology University in 2000 to become the biology chairman at UAH. He de- he's described as a highly principled, fine human being, he was a solid man, a good man. He tried very hard to support his young faculty. He was a very warm person. He was funny, a good advocate for his department. He really is the nicest man I've ever known. You don't feel like a graduate student. You feel like part of a family. And I got most of this information about the victims from WAFF, a local news station and they did good work but something that really bothered me as I go on to read the about the victims is they really just focus on 
how good they were at their jobs, how they were great at work. And while that is a huge part of who they are, I want to know more about them. You know, there's more to a person than just how great they are in their field. They have hobbies. I mean, these people had families and friends. They liked probably to go out. They had hobbies. I mean, they might have had pets. They might have been dog lovers or great at karaoke. And I don't know. That's something I feel that's really lost when we look about this is we only talk about how good they were at their job. And people are much deeper than that. Um. I don't know. I think that's a real shame they don't bring that out either. And they don't talk about it when they talk about these people. If I die, I don't want someone to talk about how I'm really good at making smoothies or coffee. I want someone to talk about my love of art or cats, like, or my friends. I don't know. That's my, it's just something that bothered me with these. But Dr. Maria Ragland Davis joined UAH in 2000 when her previous employer was sold. She was also 52 and had a doctorate from North Carolina State University and studied molecular biology and plant genetics. She was very excited about her research projects. She was a fine, hardworking person. Dr. Adriel Johnson, also 52, biology professor working in cell biology and nutritional physiology research. He volunteered to teach Boy Scouts about science and nature. Before his death, he won the Boy Scout District Award of Exceptional Work with Urban and Rural Scouts. And the Silver Beaver, the highest award a volunteer scout leader can receive. Dr. Joseph Lay, he survived the shooting and tried to make each day as normal as possible. He lost his sight out of his right eye and had blind spots in his left eye. He needed a metal plate to protect his brain where his skull was now missing. He began running and teaching again after the incident. He once entered a race at UAH and when asked how he did, he said first place in this category. When Asked what his category was, he said, runners, he'd been shot in the head in 2010. He was kind and he found humor in a terrible situation. He was a great guy. He later died seven years later from a heart attack. Stephanie Monticoli calls the shooting her rebirth. She was Gopi's assistant who was shot. She survived and turned tragedy into a new life for herself. She did not return to her job at UAH, which, girl, I would not either. Uh, she met up with Moriarty and Josephine to talk about it. She said, in order to get through this, you have to admit you were there. She now spends her days focused on family and church. Dr. Deborah Moriarty stepped up as biology chairwoman for a time, but has since retired. She still conducts labs and research on volunteer bases but it has left the department. So what's changed now in those 11 years? While not automatic but mandatory or mandatory, the university does provide counseling for employees who do not get tenured now and provides assistance in finding a new job. UAH did not perform background checks on faculty when this occurred, which could have prevented this tragedy. So now they do. 
UA Alert Emergency Notification System is now a thing. And what this is, is every time something happens, we get a mass text, the students and the families, um, just to say what it is, which I'll say firsthand, like I get these alerts, I'm in the system, and it's really nice to know. Um, I currently go to UAB, and a few, probably like a, a few months ago now, um, there was a robbery on campus, and we got a mass text basically explaining the situation that was just like, hey, watch out, this happened, but things are fine now. It's just, it just keeps you in loop. But when this happened, I mean, there was no system in place to let people know what was even going on. So, oh, where was it? Um, yeah, I found this comment online where this woman said she was supposed to be on campus that day. And thankfully, she was somewhere else. But she had to wait three hours to hear if her sister was alive because all they knew that there was a shooting and nothing more. The, um, the conference room where the shootings happened has now been converted into an office space. Across the hall, the new conference room is surrounded by glass and that allows for everyone to see in and out, which I kind of mix feelings about because I understand the concept is if something happens inside, now everyone can see, you know, to get help. But at the same time, what if they're locked? I mean, if someone gets locked out of the room like Amy did and they were scared for her to shoot through that glass, if the whole room's glass, I feel like it kind of puts you in danger. But I have not seen it. I have not been there personally in person to see how this room looks. So I could be wrong. They could be safer. I don't know. That's just my thoughts on it. Um... The university now has a living garden along the university's greenway as a way to remember those we lost. And Huntsville is a big city with a small town feel. Everyone knows everyone, and an incident like this affects someone you know, which kind of made me a little hesitant to talk about it at first, given people who are going to listen to this know it and know someone involved in it. But it's been living in my head rent-free, and I really just want to get it out. Like, my best friend is currently taking a class taught by Dr. Cruz Vera, and she says he's a cool teacher. And her aunt was a biology student at the time and nearly lost all of her teachers during this, which I can't imagine losing all of my professors. I mean, and I have family at one point who knew Bishop's kids. I mean, this happened 11 years ago, but the effects of it are rippling and everlasting even today. So to wrap this up, I'm going to give my reflection and opinion on the case. Which, personally, I think Amy, Bishop li Amy Bishop's life gives us an insight on what can happen when mental illness goes unchecked and privilege is abused. I think she showed a clear pattern of violence in her life, and nobody stepped in until it was too late. I feel like most people who commit heinous acts tend to have an escalation, and people are too quick to ignore the signs until something terrible happens. And I kind of wonder or believe if she wasn't a white woman from an affluent family, if she really would have gone away with so much beforehand. Maybe she wouldn't feel so privileged and untouchable if people hadn't proven time and time again that she was. 
I mean, she was taught that she could do harm and be fine. I mean, she got away with the pipe bomb thing, allegedly. She shot her brother and barely got a slap on the wrist. I mean, she punched a woman in IHOP and was let off. I mean, she was never held accountable for her actions. So why not escalate is the issue here. And I think if therapy was more acceptable and easier to receive, perhaps she could have gotten help, maybe be less unhinged, help deal with tragedy of loss, help deal with rejection. However, I think she's also selfish and narcissistic, and I don't know if therapy could help that. Because she didn't care how her actions harmed others. She took someone's family. She took someone's friend away. She destroyed her own family by having her kids grow up without a mother and now her actions are going to forever follow them around. And I mean, she hurt an entire city. She took students' mentors away and colleagues, co-workers away, and the ability to feel safe going to school and work. And I think this could have been stopped so many times before, for at least before it escalated to this. And I mentioned mental illness a lot. Because I think she had some, but just because you have mental illness doesn't mean you're going to do something like this. Um, I think she was privileged and allowed to go unchecked and never given consequences. And I believe people are multifaceted and several things contribute to go into someone to making them how they are. So obviously, you can be mentally ill and be a good person. You can be privileged and from a fluent family and be a good person. I don't think putting in po bo people in boxes or saying one size fits all is the way to go. But I think these are definitely contributors in this case. And I feel they are important to reflect on and ask how we can pay attention and step in to prevent another thing like this from happening. And unfortunately, this is a really hot topic right now because I was making, I was writing these notes in the beginning of February and I had to postpone this because of midterms and traveling and whole things in life. And within that like month and a half of putting this off, there's already been two shootings. The man in Atlanta shooting these women and the man in Colorado shooting at that store in Boulder. And while Amy Bishop is an outlier for being a female mass shooter, she's still just a number in the ever-growing list of murders. And I think it's important to look at the whys and look at the hows. Because we all, I don't know, it's these things are frequent enough. But we all are guilty of being like, that's wild, but it could never happen here. It could never happen to me. But I mean, this happened in my hometown and people I know were affected. I mean, last year there was a shooting at a mall like 15 minutes away from me. I remember last year texting my friend if she was okay because she lived in El Paso during the Walmart shootings. I mean, I don't know, this could happen to anyone, anywhere. And I just think it's important that we look at them and we talk about it and we talk about the whys and the hows and see what changes can be made. I mean, the school made some changes afterwards, but we need to pay attention, hold people accountable and see what we can do changes beforehand. But anyway, that's enough of my soapbox. Um, 
I'm sorry this is a heavy episode and it's long, but I feel like it's really important and I needed to just get it out there. But like I said, I'm only going to sprinkle in true crime throughout this. I mean, it's bird of lore, not bird of crime. So (laughs) I'm going to go back to talking about cryptids and curses and weird stuff after this. But if you want to find me, you can look me up on Facebook under Bird of Lore. I'm on Instagram under Bird of Lore. Um, I have an email, birdoflore at gmail.com. I'm starting to branch out to other social medias. But those are really the only three I use for the most part right now. If this takes off, I'll probably start using the others more. But yeah, I mean, go on there, follow. I'll be always post pictures on Instagram. And yeah, follow, say hi, check up. And I will see you guys next time.